You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Episode 22 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Embodiment and the Overlap Between Incarnational Theology and Body Studies. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are these two wonderful and brilliant people that I'm really excited to have on the show today. We have the first-time guest panelist, Diana Anderson, and returning guest panelist, Nate Craddock. So, hello, Diana and Nate. Hi. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> so let's introduce ourselves for our listeners. Um, I'll go first. I'm one of the regular panelists with the Christian Feminist Podcast, and I'm moderating today's episode. I'm a PhD candidate at Florida State University, and I'm right now uh, currently working very slowly on my dissertation on Renaissance poetry. I became interested in body studies when um, when I had a body studies class back at my master's program at James Madison University in Virginia, uh, and I also used body studies in my master's thesis there a little bit, so that's one reason why I was interested in thinking about how body studies could overlap with theology in this episode. And um, I'm really excited in this episode to be doing it with these two people that I've known since undergrad. Um, our dedicated listeners will remember Nate Craddock from episode 11 of this podcast, LGBTQ People in the Church. And um, you also, of course, might know Diana from her, her blog and recent book on purity culture. So, Diana, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Hi, I'm Diana Anderson. I live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, currently. Um, and my book is called Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity. It's taking a feminist approach to purity culture and sexual ethics within the church and criticizing the current culture of shame that exists and um, reexamining and reimagining what we can do about sexual ethics from a godly perspective. And I am also uh, starting a master studies, master of studies in women's studies at Oxford University this fall. So we're so excited to have you here. And uh, Nate, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Nate Craddock. I have been on the Christian Feminist Podcast before, as Marie said, and I'm really excited to be back here again. As of this past Saturday, the 18th of April, I am a resident of Washington, D.C., um, and I work in Alexandria, Virginia, as a case manager for a treatment foster care program. I have a Master of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary, and I am a Ph.D. program dropout from the University of Kentucky in the field of historical musicology. Um, I'm really interested in body studies because I have a body, and I <laughs> like to connect it to my on-the-ground practice of theology. Um, and this is actually something that has been a personal thing I've been wrestling with just as I've been coming into my own 
um, and walking the journey of integration. But I am really excited, as you'll hear more gushing from me later, about the connection of body studies and sacramental theology. Um, I'll be sharing a little bit about uh, the Eucharist later. Um, I am in discernment with the Diocese of Virginia, the Episcopal Diocese of Virginia for uh, the priesthood, and I'm really excited to continue on that journey as well. Oh, thanks, Nate. That's that's uh, exciting stuff going on in your life. Um, so today's episode, um, like I've already uh, hinted, is about uh, incarnational theology and body studies. And we're considering how we might see these two fields having overlapping concerns. So in this, over the course of this episode, we'll be referring at times to four different works that uh, I'll link information to in the show notes. Um, In the first section of today's episode, the knowing section, we'll consider Athanasius' 4th century treatise on incarnation, De Incarnatione, um, as a text that's dealing with incarnational theology. And then we'll look at an excerpt from Susan Bordeaux's 1993 book, Unbearable Weight, Feminism, Western Culture, and the Body, as an example of body studies, uh, of a body studies approach. Uh, After that, in the reading section, we'll discuss how embodiment and theology are linked in a chapter from Mary Timothy Proke's 1996 book, Toward a Theology of the Body, and look at an excerpt from David Brown's 2007 book, God and Grace of Body. Um, So that's just to give you a little heads up about these texts that we'll be mentioning a few times here. So, Nate, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about incarnational theology and um, De Incarnatione? Sure. Um, To put it as simply as possible, incarnational theology is, I guess in a way, studying where God intersects with the lived experience of a human in a body which is where the word incarnational goes to. And I, I want to jump into a tangent right here and, and talk about terminology. The word incarnational is how we would describe the incarnation in English, and that comes out of Latin. And literally, incarnation means enfleshment or enmeetment. Um, whereas in the East, the word used to describe the incarnation of God namely the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, is inanthroposis, um, which has a little bit broader meaning. It, it means more along the lines of God's inhumanment, uh, God becoming human, the, not just the body, but the whole human person lived in the context of a body. Um, so in some ways... As we're talking about incarnational theology, we're talking about the intersection of God and the human experience, how God becomes human and how God identifies with us. Um, so as we look at St. Athanasius' work, De Incarnatione, on the incarnation, uh, this work from the 4th century comes out of the Arian controversy. This is Athanasius' great treatise defending the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, um, namely arguing that 
Jesus is fully, completely, entirely God and fully, completely, entirely human. The two natures, well, natures don't come until later in the uh, Christology debates of the 5th and 6th centuries, but God and human are united in this person of Jesus of Nazareth. The Arian controversy in in short, was the argument that, um, or the controversy that erupted over the argument from Arius that there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. The Son of God was not. Um, And there was a popular uh, slogan touted around Alexandria at that time. Uh, There was a time when the word was not. Um, And that became kind of the motto or moniker of Arian Christology and St. Athanasius said, I think there is an issue here that we're not really considering. Um, And so he went head to head with this kind of Arian theology, and De Incarnazione is his great treatise in response to this issue. Essentially, De Incarnazione boils down to the salvific ramifications of. God becoming human. If Jesus of Nazareth was not fully God, um, sure, he was fully human, but if he's not fully God, if he is not fully the pre-eternal, pre-existing, has always been there, God who is the ground of being, the creator of the universe, then we can approach God, but we can't come fully to participate in the life of God, because if Jesus is not fully God, then there is no aspect of humanity that is participating in Godhood at this time. And so it it becomes a question of salvation for St. Athanasius. But when St. Athanasius is talking about salvation, he's not talking about this genteel Southern Protestant notion of, I'm just going to earn stars in my crown and go into heaven when I die. No, for St. Athanasius, the the whole concept of salvation is bound up in this idea that humanity is restored to an entirety of life and wholeness. And there's this great line from De Incarnazione that I've modernized a little bit. Um, God became human so that humans might become God. So that, in other words, humans with their bodies, with everything that being human entails, might participate in the divine life of God. And Athanasius argues, and later on, St. Irenaeus of Lyon picks up on this, uh, the idea that it's integral to the design and the purpose of the universe that God become a human. And to become human necessarily is to have a body. And I want to go on to a planned tangent here because I feel like this might be a good question for Marie and Diana to help tease out and and, and explore in some ways. Um, Is there something, is there something deeper about the incarnation that I'm trying to figure out exactly how I want to say this. Um, What does it mean that God if, if we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, what does it mean that Jesus of Nazareth was born purportedly biologically a man without the aid of a human man? Um, in other words, 
is there something incarnationable, incarnational about the process by which Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary that incorporates both, say, biologically male and biologically female humans into this unified redemptive act? Because if we, if we pick apart the incarnation biologically, I know it's a stretch, um, but the Son of God was formed entirely from the flesh and the blood and the cytoplasm and the DNA and the mitochondria of a woman. There was no man involved there. Um, so that, that's, that's a question or really a reflection I, that came to me as I was thinking about uh, De Incarnazione. Um, but ultimately, it's because of the incarnation that the stuff we're made of, that is matter, now matters to God as it always had. But it matters to God in a new way because matter itself, our flesh and our blood, is now part of God. If we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is fully God and fully human, that means our humanity is now part of and participating in the divine life of God. And so the important thing to keep in mind when we talk about body theology, especially through this lens of St. Athanasius, is I think in some ways twofold. Uh, one, that embodiment, that an anthroposis or incarnation encapsulates the whole of human experience lived within a body, not just our bones, flesh, and blood, but also our experience of the world in these vessels that we are. And two, that to speak about body theology or incarnational theology is to talk about the way that our lived human experience in bodies is the means by which we participate in the life of the divine. And that life, that life in the divine, we live in our bodies as humans now. It's not something that happens solely after we die. It's not something that happens solely at the eschaton. We are living the divine life of God in our bodies, in our sunburnt and lumpy and beautiful bodies right now. And that's why and that's why belief in the bodily resurrection has historically been such a big deal within Christian thought and Christian theology. Oh wow, that's all <laughs> that's such a great introduction to incarnational theology and I think um lays the groundwork for uh, people who will be talking about further aspects of the incarnation in our next podcast episode, but also really gets into uh, the significance of the incarnation when it comes to thinking about what it means that we are embodied creatures, that we are bodies, you know. Um, so before I get off on a tangent, uh, Diana, do you have any comments about... Um, incarnational theology or Athanasius? Um, off the top of my head, what come, what comes to mind is how much, um, like Nate said, it's salvation isn't in the form of like the, the Southern, um, you know, I've got my stars and my crown. I'm going to heaven when I die sort of thing. It's, um, more in terms of our physicality and our bodies now. And, Paul emphasizes that we get new bodies at the resurrection, at the at the eschaton, and and stuff. And so that physicality is always very important. And I think um, 
one of the things that if we look at the American church right now, we've really moved away from a lot of that incarnational theology. A lot of our theology, particularly in the white evangelical church, is about um, basically we are a soul that just happens to be inhabiting a meat suit. Um, And I think incarnational theology is a really good response to that, and it's got really uh, good roots in the orthodox uh, theological tradition. And stuff. So I don't know if Nate wants to say anything about that or the the sort of Gnostic thinking that happens in the in the particularly white American church. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean if you yeah. look at if you look at Southern evangelicalism, it's essentially well, okay, I don't want to write it that large. But <laughs> there <laughs> there is a lot that is embedded in American folk religion that is that's not Christianity, it's Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. It's this belief that, oh, the body is just this thing I have to deal with. But as we as we start to process and integrate this idea, no, God is working salvation in my body right now. It means like, oh, mm-hmm. God is working salvation. God is working restoration. God is working all these things, this resurrectional impulse through me eating dinner and and mm-hmm. attending, and attending mm-hmm. to physical needs and my sex life and all of these other things that God is there present working in my body to draw me into closer relationship with God's self. Mm-hmm. It's really wild to think about when you think about it like that. But that like that's that's the imagination or that's the that's the 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 that's the embodied imagination of Christian tradition. Like we, we live our lives. We work out our salvation. We participate in the life of God in bodies, not just mm-hmm. in our minds, but with our bodies, with all that we are. Yeah. I love what you point out about that. And that was something that struck me in uh, reading Athanasius too, that he is making allowance not only for this um you say that the the lived experience of where god intersects with the body but kind of in some in some ways counteracting um this idea that the body is uh worthless or the body is completely um you know disconnected with spiritual life um one place I saw this was in chapter three in paragraph fifteen when uh, Athanasius comments on how how Christ's incarnation allows for humans to experience divine truth through bodily senses. Um, so there's that connection with Christ being human, being in a body, but then there's also humans perceiving Christ in the body through bodily senses. So when Athanasius says. Um, the quote is uh, be- that Christ became himself an object for the senses so that those who were seeking God and sensible things might apprehend the Father through the works which he, the word of God, did in the body. Um, he continues, human and human-minded as men were, therefore, to which other si- whichever side they looked in the sensible world, they found themselves taught the truth. Um, that seems to me like a moment where we have this, this acknowledgement of bodily knowledge 
And he doesn't necessarily all throughout the text have this glowing endorsement of knowledge gained through the body. So it's just like human and human-minded men that need this knowledge in the body. Um, but it's at least allowing for the body as this means of experiencing God. And um, Christ's incarnation is seen as facilitating that experience. So that's one thing I liked in the text. Um, and as far as what you're bringing up, Nate, about the question of Jesus's gender, of course, that's a vexed question in incarnational theology. And it's been like the Christ having a male body has been, of course, used as a reason for denying women positions of authority in the church. Because it's like, oh, if Christ is male, then only men can have authority is the kind of strange reasoning there um but what you, the the view you're suggesting would uh kind of go against that um though i'm sure there's oh that's that's a whole other that's a whole big topic we probably don't have time to get into here but it's a very interesting <laughs> comment anyway that you made yeah <laughs> Um, okay, so we've had then this brief glimpse of incarnational theology and uh, of Athanasius, and that gives us uh, an idea of how really immensely important the incarnation is in Christian theology and ultimately how central um, to Christian theology we can see the idea of embodiment, embodiment itself as being um, since the incarnation is of course embodiment like Nate uh, talked about so we're really this religion that's centered around the idea of an embodied God um, so now let's turn and look briefly at the role that embodiment and embodied experience uh, has come to play in feminism um, particularly in this one sort of discipline that's connected sort of tenuously with feminism, body studies. So, Diana, could you tell us a little bit about body studies and also about Susan Bordeaux? Um, yeah, the um, the rough definition of body studies that, that I think works is the study of the body as a physical, philosophical, and spiritual sort of landscape and the idea of our bodies as um, deeply connected to our lived experiences. Um, I had a professor in graduate school at Baylor who um, we read, I think it was Simone Weil, and talked about the idea that there is no such thing as an, as an objective I. Um, our I is formed by our lived incarnated experiences in our bodies. Our sense of who we are as ourselves is formed by our race, our sexual identity, our gender, our um, able-bodiedness, our neurotypicalness, our um, all those sorts of things come together to form our experience of our body and of who we are as people. And so the study, the body studies is sort of examining how those different um, embodiment uh, things interact. And particularly in feminism, one thing that's very important is resisting the um, flattening out of any of those bodily um definitions or defining characteristics in an in introduction to to uh to body studies and the the introduction that um will be posted in the show notes um everything we talk about the idea of a woman as a social construct and particularly um the introduction uh to uh, uh deconstructs the idea of of woman as a singular 
I, as a singular simple idea and uh, brings in the the embodiment and the incarnational um, ideas of uh, how different women experience and live in the world in their embodied selves and so she starts with Simone uh, de Beauvoir's um, what is a woman question and then moves on to um, Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman which is a um, it's called a more aggressive sort of approach to that but it's demanding that people see her blackness and her femininity femininity at the same time um, and so women are in, in society are forever constructed as other. And within that other category, we have all these different intersections with our womanhood um, and with our uh, various means of oppression. And so body studies is really about the intersectionality of, um, of how various women approach the world and stuff. And it's not something that um, a lot of feminism has done a really great job on in the past. Um, there are lots of legitimate critiques of second wave feminism in terms of how it um, totally excluded um, it uh, excluded black women from the movement. It, it didn't do a very good job, including um, LGBT women, especially uh, women of color who were who were um, LGBT. And um, so, body studies is really about. Uh, the, uh, about examining the both the, the the tension between the social construction of our gender and of race and sexual identity and all those sorts of different characteristics with the tension that is our embodied experience within them so okay so that's yeah that's a great introduction to body studies which is a topic that i'm sure is going to come up in this <laughs> over the course of this podcast again in the many many years that hopefully we will keep making episodes um and uh so with this introduction to um the the anthology that we're talking about is writing on the body female embodiment and feminist theory which is edited mm -hmm. by katie conboy Nadia Medina and Sarah Stanbury. Um, so this gives this good overview of a lot of the, the complexities of what it means to have a body that's both, you know, inscribed by society and then, you know, legible to those around us and um, under this kind of constant cultural surveillance and that's something that we look at a lot in body studies this idea of um what it means to have a body that is both inscribed and and legible um and one text that's included uh later on in the anthology is one i mentioned earlier an excerpt from susan bordo's unbearable weight um that sort of demonstrates this um this concern with the body is legible that um, you you often get in body studies. Um, so in that essay, she talks about Bordeaux talks about how the the medical discourse uh, surrounding hysteria and agoraphobia in the 19th century, and then anorexia in the 20th century. Um, looking at the records of the, the women suffering from these disorders could allow um, could allow Bordeaux to see 
these women as having bodies that are physically constrained and inscribed by the gender norms of the moments when these diseases peak. Um, so you have uh, the expectation that a woman be emotional and that, but but still silent. That comes out in the hysteria that a woman's place is in the home. That's taken on with a vengeance and the agoraphobia and that a woman nurtures others and not herself. That you get taken on in the anorexia. Um, so her her essay is kind of an ex- one specific example of this treatment of the body and body studies that it's um, that takes the body as being you know, constrained and inscribed by society and then um, something that we can look at to consider how these forces are working in these specific instances of embodied experience. And more largely, too, I think it could take it, uh, her approach to these disorders as um, a reminder that all these oppressive cultural forces um, are, you know, always already embodied. So they ultimately find their expression in the human body. So sometimes when we're talking about feminism or social justice, we might slip into speech that seems talk where we seem to approach this oppression as something that's sort of just out there floating vaguely in society or culture um, separate from the body, but really more accurately, it's never separate from the body or especially from particular bodies. And there's no disembodied experience of oppression, which is I think one value of Bordeaux's essay and of um, body studies in particular um, and body studies in general. Sorry. So uh, that was, some of what I thought about this anthology in Bordeaux. Um, Nate, did you have any comments on body studies? Yeah. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me when I was reading Susan Bordeaux's essay and what really came to the fore when you were speaking about the essay um, was this idea of the body as a text upon which to act or a text to read within the societal context. And I want to approach that briefly from the like from the lived from the lived experience I have of being a gay man, um, or rather the experience of what I would call non-normative maleness, um, and how, mm-hmm. in some ways, living as a gay man can create different transgressive texts that go against um, that go against quote unquote societal norms um, and the way society would construct a, a male body's text, but which in some ways almost then become normalized. An example of this would be what I call <laughs> the Dan Savage brand of gayness, where um, the the focus and the kind of normalized uh, gay male experience is the quite cisgender really physically fit, well-off, tastefully decorated home, this kind of narrative that's constructed around this particular kind of male, transgressive male body. Um, In gay culture, if there are almost a series of these different kinds of bodies 
that have been normalized and regulated into texts. And that's how we end up with these subcultures like jock or bear or twink or any of these other (laughs) different little divisions and subclasses and this whole taxonomy of gay male bodies and to exist in a space between those different taxa of gay male bodies within what could be called the gay community is socially risky because you risk ostracization by a given taxa or taxon um, of gay men. (laughs) So, you know, I personally, I am a more zafetish, hairy specimen, I guess. I don't know. Um, (laughs) This has become a biology lesson, apparently. Um, so like the the narrative that the LG, well, no, just the G culture, just the G culture wants to ascribe to me is, oh, well, obviously he's a bear or a cub. Um, and they want to attach this kind of adjective to me to, to turn my body into a text to be read. And I think in some ways more than just a text to be read, but a particular text to be, reified and sexualized but my own experience of my body is not something that's just reified and sexualized my body carries with it an entire experience of a human life and to just boil me down to this one monosyllabic mammalian adjective is (laughs) that i mean it's it's a kind of erasure in some ways and so Mm -hmm. in some ways my experience is my story is being erased so that I can be neatly um, inserted into this narrative or this societal text for men who look like me. Yeah, and I see a similar parallel to that with the feminist response to uh, the sexualization and objectification of women's bodies within popular culture in terms of that we're taking these women who have incarnated lives and and uh, and bodies and turning them into one purpose one text that we can use for sexual gratification or for um selling uh something and advertising and um or as a, an object that's sort of a prize at the end of the the race or something like that um and body studies uh and an incarnational approach to the world naturally resists that Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like what you were pointing out about your experience in the body, Nate, as 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 a gay man, which I feel is something that is missing from the Convoy Medina and Stanbury writing on the body anthology, and um, their their focus is solely on the discourse surrounding the female body, um, whereas. Um, body studies more largely, of course, includes um, male and male-coded bodies as well. Um, and uh, so it sort of falls short as a body studies reader in, in that respect. Um, it's good to have right. you yeah. filling in the gaps a little bit there. Um, and also, it, just a caveat, in within body studies too, it's very easy, very easy to overlook the experience and texts of transgender and bigender and gender mm-hmm. non-conforming yes. bodies within yes. this too. Um, so, so theirs is a voice in the experience that gets erased as well. 
Yeah, and that was one thing I saw in this the introduction to writing on the body too. That that's all this talk about the inclusion of women, inclusion of this other group of women, inclusion of further groups of women, and then it gets to they say transsexuals, and they're like, mm, maybe in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah. really sort of unsatisfying there in the approach to uh, transgender uh, people in in this anthology. But all right, so we've looked at incarnational theology, we've looked at body studies, now we better move on to considering some more ways in which they overlap, or else we're going to run out of time. So moving on to the reading section, then, um, we're going to consider a few specific ways where you might see incarnational theologies, theology and body studies overlapping in one area, of course, um, an obvious one, which I think Nate already mentioned in his description of incarnational theology is the area of body theology, um, also called theology of the body. And this, this name comes from a series of lectures that Pope John Paul II gave from uh, 1979 to 1984. And our most dedicated listeners might recall that this was one of Sarah Morrow Cernelia's recommendations back in episode 1.2 on modesty. So talking about Catholic approaches to the body um, was her recommendation there. So these lectures were later published in a variety of formats and translations. And one recent English translation is Michael Waldstein's from 2006, which is titled Man and Woman, He Created Them. And as that title suggests, a central concern and really, uh, if not the central concern of the work is with the significance of sex between man and woman, and specifically only between a man and a woman. And uh, in his introduction, Waldstein identifies Pope John Paul II's through argument in this in his theology of the body as uh, what he says is the idea of the inseparability of the unitive and procreative meaning of the conjugal act as being nothing less then uh, rereading the language of the body in the truth, which is to say, um, he says, the spousal meaning of the body is only reread in the truth when man and woman engage in authentic sexual intercourse, um, as opposed to all that false sexual intercourse. But um, So the falsehood that is implicitly standing in contrast to the truth here is the, the falsehood of the sexual revolution that's part of what prompted um, Pope John Paul II to give these lectures. <laughs> and with that, you had the increased acceptance of extramarital sex, of contraception, and of uh, same-sex sexual activity. Um, so, of course, n- me looking at this, and probably all of us looking at this as I think we're, um, I think this is the first time that's an all-queer panel for the Christian feminist podcast, so yeah, yes. But um, so looking at this, this doesn't seem extremely um, encouraging as a basis for a theology of the body so far, um, as it's sort of working to reinscribe these heteronormative standards for behaviors and identities, and as well as, of course, condemning contraception and any sexual activity um, outside of that between a husband and wife um, within marriage seeking to procreate. 
However, okay, I think there is actually a lot of value to be found in the way that uh, Pope John Paul II and the people who are writing after him in um, creating this theology of the body, uh, in the way that he's reacting not just to the sexual revolution um, and uh, questions raised by increased you know, technological advances like in contraception, but also uh, reacting to these long-standing negative attitudes surrounding the body in Western culture and the history of Christianity. Um, Pope John Paul II is particularly rejecting the view of the body as entirely separate from the soul under Cartesian dualism and mechanism. So Descartes, of course, is was very influential in the, the 17th century popularization uh, of the idea of the strict divide between matter and spirit and body and mind at the same time that you had going on then the rise of mechanism that saw matter as being lifeless and just automatically moving you have the the well-known metaphor of the the wind-up clock as an image of the material universe so with cartesian dualism in combination with mechanism you have Western culture set to view the body as really nothing more than a machine, just something of little worth compared with what's the real person, the mind or soul that's wearing the meat suit that Diana mentioned. So part of what John, Pope John Paul II tries to do in his theology of the body is revalorize the body, um, including the sexual dimension of embodied experience to some extent, um, to revalorize the body as inseparable from the soul and as a, a an integral part of what it is to be human. Um, so in the book I mentioned earlier, Mary Timothy Prokes toward a theology of the body, she takes Pope John Paul II's work as her foundation and points out uh, a few questions that body theology might deal with. And not all of these are just going back to that reinscription of heteronormativity and the procreative aspect of sex, even though she does um, later in the book make that argument in her chapter on human sexuality. But she also um, discusses how the, the negative view of the body um, that we might see body theology as combating goes back a long before Descartes to that Gnostic dualism that you guys were talking about earlier that sees the body as, as you know, even worse than valueless, as this sinful flesh that's just weighing down the spark of the soul. Um, and it's also t tied to these age-old negative views of women and of the female body that are connected to mysticism and uh, taboos surrounding human flesh. So in her second chapter, Prokes uh, discusses why she sees a theology of the body emerging in our historical moment. Um, and she also points out that all human experience is embodied experience and that, she says, Christian faith is embodied faith, deriving from the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, and the revelation that he lived out bodily, but principally through his passion, death, and resurrection. Um, so, considering the, the body theolo theologically is necessary, then not only because any question of theology is, you know, by default considered by somebody who is a body, like Nate, your reason for being interested in body studies, you, you know, <laughs> you have a body, you are a body, um, but it's also 
necessary because the particulars of Christian theology um, are already invite, if not demand, this attention to what it means to be in a body and to be incarnate. So Prokes then defines the theology of the body as that discipline which reflects upon a faith understanding of the lived body in the material material universe. Um, and I think you can see that that, that definition of the theology of the body um, has a lot of room in it for concerns and arguments beyond just the reinscription of heteronormativity. Um, so, and you can see that in some of the questions that Prokes identifies for body theology to deal with. Um, she asks things like, what is the meaning of embodiment? What does bodiliness contribute to an understanding of being made in the image and likeness of God? Why are we sexual persons? What is the destiny of the body person after death? And, you know, other similar questions. So, to my mind, the need that Prokes and others who are writing in the wake of Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body um, have to reaffirm the positions of Catholic orthodoxy when it comes to sexuality um, leads them to answer a lot of these questions in ways that I wouldn't end up answering them. Um, but body theology in itself uh, seems valued, valuable to me just in its existence as a field, you know, reflecting on a faith understanding of the lived body in the material universe and in its attempt to revalorize the embodied nature of human life. Um, so that's one way I think we can see incarnational theology and body studies overlapping. What are, what are you guys' response to um, body theology or, or prokes? Um, Nate, what do you think? Um, uh, well... When the, when the question of the theology of the body, usually that, when that comes up, it's usually underlined or italicized or in quotes. And it's, it, I think in, in Catholic thought, I'm not Catholic, I'm Episcopalian, but having been around enough Catholic thought, um, we, it's very easy to see the theology of the body as this sort of monolithic, this is how it is. If you don't like it, deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, it. It's very easy to see it as that kind of thing. But I think in some ways, we, especially those of us in non-heteronormative bodies or living a non-heteronormative experience, can take a look at that and say, you know, I think that's a very helpful contribution to a conversation that needs to happen around the uh, the faith understanding of a lived body in the material universe because we too as non-heteronormative non-patriarchal people are also trying to get to this faith understanding of our lived bodies and the material universe that we share um so i think it's a good starting point i don't want to just throw the whole thing out and say well pfft, that's just outmoded, you know, Bronze Age Catholic theology that really doesn't engage well with the experience of people who are outside this box. I think it can be an invitation to conversation. And I think it's an important one because the theology of the body has been so influential in Catholic thought since um, JP2's series of lectures. Mm -hmm. Um so I guess in short, we, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, even though there's a lot of bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's a field that, like, if, if we are to take it as being this discipline as um, Prokes defines it, then it's a field that needs a lot of expansion beyond just uh, Pope John Paul II's theology of the body and the question of sexuality. Like, there's a lot more that needs to be going on there. Diana, what, what are your thoughts? I agree with Nate in that I think it's a starting point and I think it has a lot of flaws like the heteronormativity of it and the um the cisgender the assumed cisgender yeah, yeah. um nature of a lot of it um and so I think it's a good starting point but uh, but very many people take it as an end point and I've seen it like pointed to as as you know well this is what the pope said so it's definitive or something and yeah, it's yeah, yeah no so. so hopefully something that could be built off and expanded um mm-hmm. if it's taken as just this field of looking at the lived body and um how our faith relates to the lived body um so that's that's one way where we might see this overlap of incarnational theology body studies another specific way where we might see a a sacramental function of the body in many christian traditions is through the eucharist um so we could say that the eucharist is an area in which embodiment is foregrounded in christianity so Mm -hmm. nate could you comment on um what david brown writes about the eucharist and embodiment and also give us your own thoughts about the eucharist you should never invite me to give my own thoughts about the Eucharist. <laughs> yes, I should know that by now. <laughs> several hours, you should know that by now. But David Brown's exploration of the intersection of incarnation and the Eucharist, um, it, it occurs in the midst of a broader discussion about embodiment alongside the question of health and salvation. And for the Greek scholars in the audience, you know that, especially in St. Mark's Gospel, the word for become well or become whole is also the same word used for salvation. Um, Brown notes that the momentousness of the worshiper, whether or not they're communing in the Eucharist, um, the, the momentous aspect of that is really securing an intimate relationship between Christ's humanity and our own. So to be in the nave, watching the priest, hearing the priest consecrate the Eucharist, seeing the elevated host for Brown, or at least in the Middle Ages Renaissance mindset that he's describing at this point in the chapter, that experience to see God become bread is a way by which the observer, the worshiper, secures an intimate relationship between their own humanity and Christ's humanity or Christ's vulnerability, Christ's incarnation um, in this species of something that is so basic and so integral to human life. Um, Brown also draws out a little bit uh, the folk beliefs about this idea of the main part of Mass is when you look up and the bells ring and you see the miracle. So there's this emphasis on the moment of elevation within the liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, and there's this kind of network of beliefs and superstitions that emerge from that, from that bodily experience, from that sensuous experience of seeing God in the form of bread. There's a, there's a, 
there's an, apoc- an apocryphal story about the rabble of people at a medieval mass, and I forget where this comes from, but as the priest is holding up the now consecrated host, someone in the back of the church yells out, heave it higher, sir priest, because they want to see God. They want to see God in flesh, in bread, this kind of like almost double incarnation happening on the altar. Um, And it comes out of this belief that seeing God in anthroposed or incarnated under the species of bread, since you can't even see the wine in the cup, you can only see the bread, can convey such grace to the beholder as to count as an indulgence of sorts. But on the other hand, you have this folk belief about, and that's kind of evolved into this nasty history of blood libel, um, wherein individuals or groups of people who are mostly Jews in the, the, the Middle Age propaganda machine, those people were pegged as stealing the consecrated hosts from the church tabernacle and desecrating them on their own time. Because to desecrate a host was to desecrate the very body of Christ. Um, and so a whole host of legends emerged from this as a result. There are stories about people stealing hosts and, and, and breaking them in half or trampling them underfoot or piercing them with nails. And, and the hosts, these little, you know, half-inch wafers of bread are screaming and bleeding and, and carrying on like it's something out of a Stephen King novel. Um, and this network of beliefs and ideas about the embodied God in the Eucharist gave the Protestant reformers something to talk about <laughs> as they were revisiting what they believed about the Eucharist. Um, but Brown argues that the reformers and Aquinas, who was one of the main framers of Catholic Eucharistic theology during the scholastic era, are closer together than they seem on uh, on, on first blush because the focus is not on the question of, is this bread God? But rather, is God in this bread? And can we experience God with our bodies? Namely, can we experience, can, can you, Marie, and Diana, and I experience God in the bodily processes through by which we experience the rest of existence? Can we experience God by eating God? <laughs> um, because our bodies are our interface with the world, and it is our bodies themselves in which union with God is accomplished. And Brown also notes the welcome move away from a narrow focus on Christ on the cross as being the locus of the Eucharistic event, which both Catholics and Protestants of the Reformation times were almost uniformly focused on. This, like the, the focus was on the suffering, the literal breaking of Christ's body that made the Eucharist effective. Um, and by way of comment, this is tangent as well, I would say that for me, what's more significant about Christ's suffering on the cross is not the actual act of the breaking of Christ's body, but rather the inanthroposed, embodied, and human God participating in the complete realm of possibilities of human suffering. So that God takes them into God's self, identifying with these sources of human suffering, with pain and abandonment, betrayal, um, bleeding, thirst, hunger, uh, all of these sources of suffering, binding them in death, in the body, and undoing them in resurrection of the body. Um, And I honestly, honestly, I believe that it's not 
only the fact that God did these things that enables us to participate in the divine life, but I believe it's the fact that God did them in a body made out of the same material that we are all made of. Um, and so communal participation, Brown says in some, that, that, that the totality of Christ's bodily life is offered to God again and again in the Eucharist, not simply his suffering and death. And so Brown wraps up his argument saying Christ's humanity is envisaged as coming close in order to create Christ-like beings in their own distinctive context, one where body and soul point in the same direction in this life and become a fully integrated whole in the next. And later on, he says, closing out this chapter, the Christian Eucharist rightly focuses on the body of a particular human being who was both God and human. That is why it is so important to get the liturgical celebration of that fact right. Um, and as, I want to, I want to offer some additional comments on the Eucharist. And like I said, you really shouldn't give me the entire floor <laughs> to talk about this. Um, the Eucharist rightly celebrated, I believe is a full body experience. Um, it, you know, I'm an Episcopalian. We believe certain things about the Eucharist. So I'm just going to go from that assumption. Um, I, if, if we think about the Eucharist as an act of God coming among us to feed us, God humbles himself to the point of becoming a staple food. And this isn't just a staple food. It's the staple food of poor people. Like in the traditional celebration of the Eucharist, especially in the West, it's unleavened bread made with just flour and water. It's that same kind of bread of haste that the Hebrew people knew from the Passover. And God's power is in God's humility, and as that that's always been the case. So in becoming present in the bread and wine, God is surrendering God's own body as a text upon which to act, and a transgressive text at that. Uh, because the very act of making Eucharist and celebrating Eucharist is transgressive of social norms. Um, it, it is a great equalizing force. And I'll say more about that, but I also wanted to point out that um, as uh, th there's this idea that eating God makes us godly. And the Anglican divine John Wesley really did view the Eucharist as a converting sacrament and offered it to all as it's becoming more and more common in the Episcopal Church. Um, instead of the old economy of holiness where an unclean person touching something clean made the clean thing unclean, in the Eucharist, it's the opposite. Receiving something that is godly receiving something that is god brings us into participation in the in the divine nature of god and the presence of god in the eucharist can heal us and integrate us and so honestly i have a really i have a view of the sacraments that's really in line with kind of the way saint mark talks about the the power and the operation of god and um in the gospel of mark so if you were to look at, for example, the story of the bleeding woman, um, what heals that woman is the power and the presence of God in Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus necessarily saying, oh, you're healed, but rather if you go back and read the narrative, 
just her reaching out and touching the hem of Jesus's cloak and experiencing God's presence in that real, tangible, immediate way is what brings her to uh, to wholeness of body. Um, let's see. And we experience the kingdom of God most readily at the table, most readily at the Eucharist, because our bodily participation at that table is our participation with everyone who has ever dined there. Um, and we are all together having our sicknesses obliterated in that movement of power out from the presence of God in the Eucharist. And I also want to say a little bit about how I see the Eucharist and feminism intersecting. Um, and Marie and Diana, please feel free to jump in on this and add comments. Um, I would say that the very act of making and celebrating Eucharist traffics in the reorientation of power as a transgressive social act. Um, the priest or the presider, whether they're a man or a woman, whatever their biological body or situation is, is rightly understood not as the most powerful person in the room, the one with the magic hands, rather the presider is the one appointed by the church to be the MC for a banquet in this kind of transgressive banquet in which Christ made out of Mary's flesh is the host and the meal all bundled in one. And because extant powers are being broken down in this transgressive act, they do not and cannot stand up in a rightly celebrated Eucharist. And it could be that um, in the words of Susan Bordeaux, the Eucharist makes our own bodies a site of struggle against the, elementis, the elemental powers that bind us into performative roles based on gender or sex or class or race or whatever. It makes us a site of struggle where we can ultimately emerge victorious through tasting the resurrection. Wow, that's... Oh, I knew I needed to have you talk about <laughs> the Eucharist. That's I never thought about the um, the way you could see this as as a leveling of class structures, as a recirculation of power and authority and uh, removal of gender hierarchies. But that makes a lot of sense, and um, I don't really have anything to add to that. But that's really <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Uh, do you have do you have any comments on that, Diana? Nope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think it's a good transition, though, to considering um, how the church acknowledging this kind of embodied experience um, that sort of creates this transgressive Eucharistic situation, perhaps, um, could be another way where we might see body studies and theology overlapping. Um, Diana, I, I know it's something that you've written about. Do you have any um, thoughts about embodiment and how uh, this is, should be a part of uh, theology and Christian thought and life? Yeah, I, um, I'm a big fan of incorporating embodiment into our Christian theology, especially uh, within uh, the white evangelical church as it tries to go through uh, racial reconciliation reconciliation efforts and um, through the uh, question of what to do with uh, transgender rights in the political sphere and um, and uh, marriage equality, 
all but inevitable right now and stuff. And there's a lot of discussion uh, within the white evangelical church about how um, feminism and and uh, gender minorities and sexual minorities all just want to erase the 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 embodied differences between people. And so we get these two different definitions of embodiment that end up competing. Whereas in the, in the one camp, the um, evangelical conservative camp, you get this idea of um, embodiment as living out this role that's been assigned to you by your, uh, the gender that was assigned to you at birth. And so, so women acting as submissive to their husbands in a heterosexual marriage, producing children, you know, living out that uh, white American ideal, sort of. Um, And then you have the body studies version, which says that our bodies are important, our lived experiences are important, and these things that we bring to who we are as people is important to the body of Christ. And um, it's, it's, I found in the course of my work and in the course of working with other um, people that it's very hard to um, for those two camps to come to a common ground to talk about it um, because I, I firmly believe that the uh, gender role side tends to um, erase any embodiment in there even though they say this is the best like course of embodiment and that feminism is the one that's erasing so we're both sort of at at, at odds saying that the other is erasing um, the embodied uh, figure. Um, But I've particularly seen this argument come up in relation with recent um, issues with transgender and non-binary and gender non-conforming identities in terms of saying that um, within those sort of uh, gender minorities and those gender identities that they're erasing the role that the body has in in um, who they are by seeking to significantly alter the body in order to transition or things like that. Um, and I think that's kind of bunk um, <laughs> because I think trans identities and gender nonconforming identities and non-binary people can add a lot to our discussion of what it means to be embodied as certain genders and as uh, people. And, um, if, if nothing else, trans, uh, trans theology and queer theology are the prioritization of the body and the, the embodiment as God created us to be. I was discussing with a friend this last weekend about, um, the, the quote unquote born this way theology and, uh, born this way approach to, um, queer issues in that, you know, we say we're, we were born in, in this way. And I, um, and I said, I'm not really a big fan of the born this way sort of, um, phrasing. I call it, uh, I change it around to God created us this way. And I think that ties into embodiment in that God, um, creates and sustains us and continually works within us, um, in terms of our embodiment. And I think, um, the church could learn a lot from uh, queer engagement with the body. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Um, All right. We're almost out of time. (laughs) But before we move on to our recommendations and uh, wrapping things up, is there anything else you want to add about anything we've talked about today, Diana? Mm, 
not at the moment. <laughs> okay. Um, for my part, I'd, uh, the only thing I would add is um, this one moment that I found interesting in, in Brown in connection with Bordeaux is this section where Brown uh, talks about Maria Janus, who's a lower-class woman who, in 17th-century Venice, attempted to live solely off of the consecrated host. And Brown says that, uh, quote, this had nothing to do with a hatred of the body and everything to do with bodily identification with and incorporation into Christ, end quote. Um, but the... This anecdote has sort of seemed to me like a, an, an interesting instance of the bodily inscription of a sort of religious um, imposition in, in this case. Um, perhaps it's this kind of protest of a perception of loss of identity in the church body in, in some way, maybe, um, that would single Janice out as this particularly devout woman within that body and also maybe a protest against this uh, classed society at the same time, but it's still this this physically self-destructive scenario like the anorexia that Bordeaux describes. So anyway, that one moment in Brown's text seemed like a kind of evocative and cautionary uh, anecdote in light of the Bordeaux reading and uh, just a reminder of what you've mentioned, Diana, that of course the church can too be connected with oppression and in connection with um, other forms of cultural oppression and inscribe that oppression on the body as well as you know, any other kind of force can. But overall, when it, when it came to Brown's discussion of the Eucharist, I liked the, you know, the, the connection um, between, you know, Christ's humanity and our own that he, that he focuses on. And that, um, that intimate relationship between Christ's humanity and our own, that is the quote mm -hmm. that he uses. And for me, that, that goes back to Athanasius and uh, human embodiment as this means of accessing the divine in this moment of the Eucharist. Um, but all right, Nate, any, any last thoughts from you um, on the Eucharist or anything else? <laughs> um, I, I, as you were talking about Janice, I had the thought of what is the role of a in understanding the lived experience in the body what does an ascetic practice have to say about our experience of embodiment whether that is um whether that is attempting to subsist solely on the consecrated eucharist as there are several legends of saints especially mm -hmm. in the east doing um or can we read a thesis as this sort of self-inscribed consensual oppression with a, a teleological impetus of experiencing holiness in a different way. To put it shortly, what am I really getting out of giving chocolate up for Lent? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, what am I really getting out of, you know, subjecting myself to this practice that I'm in no way obligated to do uh, by the religious community, by the religious text, by tradition or otherwise, but I still feel impelled to do it for whatever reason. And I mean, that could be an entire podcast in and of its own. What, what does the practice of a thesis 
how does that impact our understanding of uh, embodied life? So that's more of a rhetorical question than a, a helpful observation. <laughs> um, well, I think it's I, a, an interesting uh, point to raise in connection with the body studies and theology, though, because it's one we're not uh, perhaps a little bit more reluctant to um, consider given our own cultural contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd probably better leave that a, a question to be dealt with later. Perhaps one our listeners can get into um, and move on to our recommendations, the final section of the show. And I'll go first. Um, actually, today I'm really more just passing on a recommendation than giving one myself because I haven't read this book yet. Um, but I was talking with my brother who reads a whole lot of theology and I, was, I, I asked him, you know, Bud, is there any female theologian, theologian that you like, um, you know, as, as one does ask these questions. And uh-huh. he recommended uh, Nancy Murphy and her book, Bodies and Souls or Spirited Bodies from 2006. And not to spoil too much for you guys, but the, but the answer is um, Spirited Bodies for Murphy. Um, so her book is another attempt to break down that, that Cartesian wall between body and soul. And she approaches this question through a combination of neurobiology and theology. So it's one I've been meaning to read, and I think one that connects with um, today's topic. Nate, what's, what's your recommendation? I've got a couple. Uh, the first is a website I came across um, while Googling the body and God. And then this call, this is a joke recommendation, by the way, bod for God, bod for God.com. And it is a, a Christian diet and exercise program because if fat shaming isn't bad enough, Christian fat shaming, I'm sure is totally acceptable. Um, my, yeah. My real recommendations are two books. The first one is by Andrea Beeler and Luis Chatroff, uh, entitled The Eucharist, Bodies, Bread, and Resurrection. Um, this, is a, this is a book I've read parts of. I haven't gotten to really tease it apart, but I really enjoyed it. It digs into the contemporary scholarship on ritual theory and practice, Eucharistic origins, the Eucharist and eschatology, the Eucharist and world hunger, the global economy, and the dynamics of torture, in, quote, a dramatic new vision of the transformative power of the Eucharist for our world, end quote. Um, And it also includes discussion questions, so it's a good uh, book club group, uh, book club read. Um, I also wanted to recommend William Kavanaugh's book, Torture and Eucharist, Theology, Politics, and the Body of Christ. Um, This is a study that really presents the Eucharist as the church's response to the torture or the practice of torture as a means of social control um, from the Amazon review uh, and Amazon review, or it might be a book flap review. <laughs> um, this is a great book and I have read it, but they, they encapsulate it better than I can. The author develops the theology of the political, which presents torture as one instance of a larger confrontation of powers over bodies both individual and social. He argues that a Christian practice of the political is embodied in Jesus' own torture at the hands of the powers of this world. The analysis of torture, therefore, is situated within wider discussions in the fields of ecclesiology and the state, social ethics and human rights, and sacramental theology, end quote. 
Well, I clearly need to read more about the Eucharist. So these sound like <laughs> some great <laughs> recommendations. Uh, Diana, what's your recommendation? Yeah, uh, I just want to mention we actually read Kavanaugh uh, in graduate school and stuff. And mm-hmm. so I would second to that that recommendation. Um, and so um, mine are a little bit more um, mainstream, less academic texts. But uh, for queer theology and a queer engagement of the body, I would recommend a good introduction to it, which is Radical Love by Patrick S. Chang. I'm always yeah. recommending that all over the place. Um, <laughs> and, and, so, and then um, one of the things I believe is important about um, developing a not only a good uh, theology of the body, but also a good um, praxis for it is listening to other people's stories and listening to those stories from the margins. And so, so I would recommend uh, picking up uh, this one's it's a memoir, so it's not going to be a, a book of theology, but it's Redefining Realness by Janet Mock. She's a transgender black woman who talks about her experiences uh, in transitioning, in uh, living as a woman and, and learning um, about her gender as uh, different from the experience of a cisgender woman. And so, so it's it's important to to listen to those stories and listen to how um, listen to about her relationship with her own body in that way. Oh, those sound like great recommendations too. Mm-hmm. So, thanks, Diana, and thank you both so much for being the guest panelists. I think um, that was a great episode, <laughs> and I'm so grateful to you for uh, joining me in this episode. And also thank you listeners for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows or you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and other episodes, you can check out christianhumanist.org. And again, I'll link there to information on the texts that we discussed today. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Zach Schmidt is our intern. For Diana Anderson and Nate Craddock, I'm Marie Hawes. Tune in next time for an episode on further implications of incarnational theology, so more to come. And until then, in essentials unity, and non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.